Some days are terrible, you wish that you were dead And some days are magical, like grape banana bread Someday we'll be friends with the voices in our heads The voices in our heads Hello, hi, Oh, hey, what's up, how you doing? Congrats on not taking your own life this week and all weeks up until now. And don't do it in the future weeks. I'm proud of you. Life, it's a a lot of the time. And sometimes to escape our own mental hell, you know, we, 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 we do stuff. But con- So congrats on not killing yourself. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of everyone. Not everyone. Because I don't know you, but you you know you. And that's the only person who ever will. But if you don't know yourself, well, life's just not going to get fun. Thanks for tuning in to the Voices in Our Heads. I'm your trusty host, Christina Marie Hutchinson. First day Pisces. Thank you. Haven't had sex in eight months. What? How does she do it? An incel who doesn't murder people? It's possible. I think the common factor is be a woman. Um, I'm doing some shows coming up that I really want you to come to. So if you're in the following cities, on the following dates, write it down in your calendar or go to christinahutchinson.com later for tickets. Uh, Royersford, Pennsylvania. 215, baby, you're going to get a Philly, get a hoogie, get a hoogie at Wawa. Uh, Wawa country, baby. It's about an hour outside of Philadelphia. Royersford, PA, this coming Saturday, September 19th. Corinne Fisher and myself will be at Soul Joe's Arena. It's an outdoor amphitheater that seats 400. Let me tell you something. This show's going to be fucking awesome, okay? it's only We're only doing one show. It's at 6 p.m. Seating's at 5. It's BYOB, but I swear to God, if you drive drunk home, I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to punch your injured body more. So don't do that. Um, but it's BYOB. You could bring a picnic blanket. You can come in a Snuggie. You can fucking bring your friends. And uh, we can have a dumb bitch picnic. That's what Corinne said in her Instagram caption earlier today when promoting the show so I'm stealing that from her but I'm giving her credit so it's okay and then if you're in New York City on Saturday September 26th Donna Guerreros and I hosted our first new New York pop-up event it's comedy but we can't really say that um and it was really great oh my god I'm so proud of us I'll tell you more on that later because the night of the show and the night and, and what happened afterwards was uh was very funny to me so I'll tell you more about that but our second new New York pop-up event is saturday september 26 if you want to go there and you want tickets or you want more information email me okay because we can't advertise it the voices in our heads podcast at gmail.com uh yeah it's gonna be good and wear a fucking sweatshirt because i didn't do that and i wore a fucking hot ass blouse because i hadn't seen a lot of people in a long time and i regretted it Tempe, Arizona. Corinne and I are going to be at the Tempe Improv August, or August. Go oh, fuck yourself, Christina. October 8th, 9th, and 10th. <laughs> Woo! I've been recording podcasts all day, so you think I'd be better at talking. Denver, Colorado. We're going to be in you. Corinne Fisher and I at Comedy Works, October 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. Again, for all tickets, except for the new New York shows, ChristinaHutchinson.com. Okay? We need live comedy right now more than ever. But I really mean it. There's so much shit happening. I, If you're in an area where there are fires, I hope you're okay. Holy shit, I hope you're okay. 
and I'm assuming if you're listening to a podcast, I assume you're okay, but maybe not. Maybe you're listening to it for, a mis- for some escapism. And then I just reminded you of the fire that ruined your home. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that, but I hope you're okay. Um, I wanted to clarify something that I've been saying on this podcast because y'all, I'm open to being wrong and I, I don't assume I'm wrong, but I'm very open to being wrong or, or, uh, you know, if I say something that seems skewed and I find out later that yes, it is skewed. I, I want to correct myself because I want to be a living, breathing, farting example. Um, I'm good person. Um, something I say a lot is feelings aren't facts, but they are clothes. So take out your treasure map, boys and girls, and figure out the painful root of your wounds. Uh, but the whole feelings aren't facts. Uh, Corinne and I interviewed, I guess I can say it, because it's going to come out eventually. Um, if you know who this person is, you'll probably be excited. Uh, if you don't, then you'll be like, what? Uh, Guy Winch, he's a psychologist. It was one of the most riveting interviews. He talks about heartache, and he did a TED Talk called How to Heal a Broken Heart. And Corinne had told me to watch that when I was, um, you know, brokenhearted. Uh, over the years and it really helped and we finally got to interview him I was really excited this was an emotional fucking interview man Woo! it was good it was fucking good and he really gave us space to talk about heartache and validating it in a way that I've never heard anybody do so that was really exciting but uh he said one of the things he said is feelings are facts and I was like oh wait excuse me um excuse me Mr. Guy Winch uh, excuse me I just want to add so I've been saying that feelings aren't facts but they are clues and what are your thoughts on that basically he clarified it in a way that uh, I want to clarify my statement uh, because feelings are real. They are real. If you are feeling something, it is a real thing. And, 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 and that's why it's doubly infuriating when somebody denies your feelings because you're like, no, I know how I feel. You fucking idiot. And then you punch them and then you're like, well, now I got to go to anger management. Um, feelings are real. But what would clarify my sentiment that I've been making better is the negative voices in your head. Those are not facts, but they are clues. I stand by that whole clues part, the fucking clues. So if you're telling yourself that you're a dumb fat fuck, right? That's not a fact. Okay. But you keep telling yourself it's a fact. And so it's, it's easy to believe that it is, but that is a very important clue. My friend, if you're just sitting on the dock of a bay going, I'm a, stupid fat fuck I would encourage you to explore that and go when was the first time I felt like this that's one of the things my therapist says she'll go when was the first time you remember feeling like this and I'm like oh boy Jane here we go we're going down the roller coaster into scary town good thing I trust you so so the feelings I guess when I when I said feelings I really mean the negative voices in your head but also Feelings are real, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're true. I guess I'm just beating around the bush and saying the same thing eight times. But, you know, I'm trying to get better with words. Be curious about how you feel. Because what you feel is real. It exists in you. But the origin of that feeling, especially when we're talking about something like a trigger, is probably not what's happening in that moment. You know? If, if you were three years old... And you, your mom brought out a tray of cupcakes for your birthday and, and they all had candles on them. And then you fell into the tray of cupcakes and you lit on fire and you lost all your hair. And then, you know, 
Maybe you forgot about it. Maybe you, maybe you blocked that one out because your brain was like, Houston, we can't handle this. Over. We're going to reject it. Shove it deep, deep down in a hole. Over. And then 27 years later, when you're 30, oh, I can do math. Your boyfriend gives you a tray of cupcakes and you call him a stupid fucktard uh, and you smash the cupcakes in his face and you're like, why did I do that? That's a very cartoonish example, but you know what I'm saying. So it, so it's possible that you repress something that actually happened to you as a child that caused that feeling to happen to begin with. That's what I'm trying to say. And now for your weekly reminder to wear fucking wrist pads when you rollerblade, okay? Wear wrist pads, wear knee pads, wear elbow pads, and wear the greatest pad of them all. Always. No, I'm just kidding. The helmet. Wear a fucking helmet. Y'all, people are sending me pictures of their x-rays that they got because they were rollerblading and they didn't wear the pads, okay? So wear them, all right? You're not going to look like a dumb fuck when you're up to your knees and padding, but you will look like a dumb fuck when you try to dance with your daughter at a wedding, but you can't because you're in a wheelchair because you fucked up rollerblading because you didn't wear your pads. Again, cartoonish example, but you get what I'm saying, okay? Ah, love iced tea. Yeah, so wear those fucking helmets and pads and shit, okay? My friend Justin, my good pal Justin Silver, he recommends a lot of things to me. He recommended Nathaniel Brandon, Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. And uh, and we're going to get into a very heavy chapter, heavy for me at least, he read the other day he texted me and he was like, oh, gosh, I just watched this documentary. It's called My Octopus Teacher. You should watch it. And I was like, oh, cool. And I hadn't really taken the time to watch anything on television. You know, I'll either watch snippets of the news. The only thing I watch in its entirety is Last Week Tonight. That's the only sh- television show that I keep up with. The only one. And Saturday Night Live, but it's not on right now. And so I was like, you know, I want to I want to watch a fucking I want to watch a fucking movie. And he recommended that. So I was like, oh, I'm going to watch it. And I assumed it was about an octopus who was a teacher. Um, so he recommended this to me. It's on Netflix. Um, and, I, and I turned it on and I watched it. And it was, you know, very clear at the beginning. This guy who lives in South Africa uh, started diving. And he was talking about how the body can, can really withstand really cold temperatures in the ocean. You just kind of think you can't. You get in your own head. And, uh, and then he talks about uh, becoming friends with an octopus, basically just being really obsessed with this octopus. And, I, the, you know, this was made clear about 10 minutes in the documentary. And 10 minutes in the documentary, I turn into fucking Veruca Salt whenever I see anything I want. I'm like, I want to be friends with a freaking sea creature. I want an octopus friend. I want all the octopus friends. Give it to me now. And then, so, But I kept watching the documentary. And, um, and it was a beautiful film. It teetered between me being in awe over this guy's relationship with an octopus. Octopus, octopi (laughs) are very smart. They're very smart creatures. And for a lot of the film, I was like, wow, this is what a beautiful relationship that a human being can form with his equipment, with his camera. He can form this bond with a fucking octopus. That's so cool. But then every once in a while, I was like, wait, is he trying to fuck that octopus? 
I think he might be trying to fuck that up. Is he in love with that octopus? He kept saying, referring to the octopus as her, which was a female octopus. But he was talking about her as if he was talking about a woman. Or as if, he, yeah, as if he was talking about a woman that he was deeply falling in love with. He, I mean, this shit was poetic. The way that he was talking about her every move. And I know I haven't been touched by a man sexually in eight months, but... And it really have not had any interaction with a man that was romantic of any kind in eight months. I did go on a first date, but that was it. Uh, but it, it had me going, man, I want to find me a man who will love me and look at me the way this guy loves and looks at this fucking octopus. God damn. I'm reading all your fuckboy Friday submissions, your fuckboy theater submissions, and I'm like, thinking about this guy with the octopus and I'm like I mean do we need tentacles to get a man's attention and and it was a beautiful story and he did allude towards the end of the documentary to having some personal problems and it kind of coincided with a time he went to okay guys this is what I'm talking about with with devotion to this fucking octopus okay I, I left out this fact he dove into the ocean every fucking day for a year to hang out with his octopus, okay? Every day. And he snorkeled. He didn't have an oxygen tank because he's like, I knew I didn't want one and so I was just figured out how to hold me breath longer. No, that's not what he sounded like. He had a South African accent. But you get it. <laughs> he dove into the ocean every day, 365 days in a row, okay? Get you a man. I mean, I don't want a man that's that that's that much. That's too much. But you know what I'm saying? Wow. You know? Wow. How I want to wow a man like that and then complain when he's smothering. Um, that's white love. <laughs> Just going off on my old bit. Um, it, but it was really poetic the way this guy loved this octopus. And there was a time, it was a beautifully done documentary. The footage he captured was brilliant. The person who edited it did a great job. And there was a time where sharks, I mean, man, octopi, they're fucking amazing. The way that they take their tentacles and just pick up a bunch of shit around them if there's a shark, and then they put all their tentacles like up over their head with all the shells attached to it so he looks like a fucking rock. I'm like, you brilliant bitch. Of course. But there was one one time where the octopus got um, part of its tentacle eaten by a shark. And um, he, the guy cried. And I was like, I think he wants to fuck that octopus. I think he wants to wed that octopus. But the octopus was very weak for a long time. And then it began to grow a, 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 another tentacle. And it was really beautiful. And then he was saying that it coincided with problems that he was having in his life. And because he has two children and a wife. And I'm like, I feel like the problems he was having was, was that like code for you're getting a, your wife's leaving you because she's pissed that you spent all your time with that fucking octopus. And then he took his son diving to see the octopus. I'm like, you even taking the kids away from your wife and getting them immersed into the ocean. And he talks about getting his son obsessed. He uses the word obsessed with the ocean and being in it every day. And I feel like the mom was like, all right, you know, fuck this shit. I'm going to leave and start another family with people who won't leave me to hang out with an octopus in the ocean. And one of the things he said about this octopus was that 
He said, she made me feel like I was a part of the ocean, not a visitor. I'm like, boy, I think he wants to fuck that octopus. I think he wants to be in love with that. But the octopus died. It died because they only live a year. So I'm not ruining, you know, I think he says it at the top. But I'm like, that guy, man, that guy's in love with that octopus. It was a beautiful story. Another documentary that you, I, you have to, you have to. And I'm going to put these all, all the, the, the things that I'm talking about, I'm, I'll put them on the resource section of my website, ChristinaHutchinson.com. Um, the Social Dilemma on Netflix. Another doc on Netflix. Wow. This one, this one, this one affected me perhaps for the rest of my life. For the better. Because that's what documentaries, a good documentary does. You know? A good documentary sticks with you because it, it, it informs you. And knowledge is power. So fuck you. Um, but the social dilemma. I'll hit you with some quotes from this fucking movie that really, it basically dives into companies like, tech companies like Facebook and Google and how, how evil they are. They're, they're real. And I kind of knew that without really knowing why. Just because the way Facebook developed was so disgusting to me. And then the, what it did to my parents was disgusting to me. And what it brings out in people is disgusting to me. Even though one of the quotes was like, there can be uh, the, the, uh, it could, something could signal a euphoria and also the end of times. So it's like the, uh, really beautiful things come out of Facebook. But, you know, the main tech guy that is being interviewed in this talks about a bicycle and he goes you know with certain inventions in history we don't say we don't question whether or not they're ruining the fabric of our society when bicycles came out no one was like are bicycles pulling us away from our family and children but you look at something like facebook and you can very rightly so say that and then i think of the people in my life who are glued to their phones in this way that's disgusting. And I say it's disgusting because I myself get glued to my phone. You know how many times I have sat on the couch and then was going to look something up on the internet or buy something on Amazon or do something stupid with my fucking phone. And then 30 minutes later, I go, wait, what happened? And I'm diving into my ex-boyfriend's ex-girlfriend's ex-boyfriend's fucking dad's Instagram. And I'm like, why am I here? The manipulation that the software developers instill in developing software such as Instagram and Facebook, and Instagram is now owned by Facebook, is fucking disgusting. It's so manipulative. It's so manipulative. And here's some quotes from this. Uh, this is an Edward Tuft quote that they put. And I was like, oh, shit, bitch. I'm about to do a lap around the block naked because that's some truth. There are only two industries that call their customers users, illegal drugs and software. Woo! See ya! Another quote, if you are not paying for the product, then you are the product. Your attention is being sold to advertisers. So that's the, if you don't pay for, you don't pay for Facebook, man, when Corinne and I switched over to Luminary, we had ads. First year of our podcast, it was, we didn't have ads. Second, third, fourth year, we had ads. And then we eventually switched to behind a paywall because we felt safer behind a paywall and we enjoy it more and we divulge more and we feel more comfortable. And, and when I heard this quote, if you're not paying for the product then you are the product, I'm like, yeah, that's fucking absolutely it. Not to say that um, 
we had manipulation tactics for our listeners of this pod of the podcast. But you know, when we wanted to do ads, we asked our podcast listeners to take a survey voluntarily, and they did. But they told us their income. They told us their age. They told us if they had kids. They told us what their job is. They told us what their education was. They basically filled out, filled out this freaky-ass fucking sheet that we asked them to do, and they did it. And then we gave it to the ad agency that we were using, and then they gave it to the advertisers. And I'm like, this feels fucking gross, man. You know? Although I do understand that if, if look, companies like Casper Mattress and Blue Apron started on podcasts. Okay, I started hearing Blue Apron ads on Mark Maron's What the Fuck podcast. And then all, now all of a sudden, uh, you know, Blue Apron or uh, well, at least Casper Mattress, they started on podcasts. They started advertising on podcasts. And now their company's really big and they have fucking stores now that you can't go in because COVID. <laughs> but um, so that's not to say like if obviously if I want to. Uh, if, if I have a company and I want to advertise on podcasts, it's really smart. Podcasting is a medium that is going to take over the world, but in an ethical way, I think. Um, I want to know what the demographic of their listenership is. I can guess, but if I'm going to invest money, I want to know. And I want to invest my money where it has the greatest chance of having a return. So if my product is built for men ages 50 to 60... I'm probably not going to go on guys we fucked and advertise. Although we have plenty of those listeners in that demographic. But you know what I mean? So I do get it. I understand that you want to, you need to know the demographics. But goddamn, I just, when we way to switch over to Luminary, I'm like, power to the people, baby. You fucking pay, you, if you listen to podcasts, that means you, you likely have a smartphone and you likely have some amount of income to pay. When Luminary started, they started out way too expensive in my opinion. <laughs> started out at $8.99 a month. And while... I could have afforded that and I would have purchased that for sure, even if it was for just one podcast. I think that uh, where they are now is $2.99 a month. I'm like, that's where you should have been, but I get it. You know, you got to do trial and error. Mistakes are made and that's okay. That is all to say that the way Facebook monitors what you do is so, dude, Mark Zuckerberg is not a person. He's a lizard. I, I mean, if you watch clips of Mark Zuckerberg talking, you're like, where's the soul behind the eyes? I mean, it is terrible. He looks like a killer, a murderer. Not saying he is a murderer. I don't think he is. But boy, does he not have a soul. It left his body when he was in college. Um, yeah, so if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. Your attention is being sold to advertisers. And podcasts like that example I did when we were doing the ads with Guys We Fuck, that's a very small example because the way that Facebook is integrating what they do, like they be now that they own Instagram, that's why whenever you fucking have a story and you have a crush on somebody and you look to see who's looked at your story and your crush is at the top, they fucking know, they put that on purpose. They put that on purpose. And it explains it in the documentary. I'm like, you fucking fucks. They will put things on purpose in front of you because they are able to predict your relationship to that person based on how you look at how you engage with their profile. It's fucking freaky. Here's some other quotes. If you want to control the population of a country, there has never been a tool as effective as Facebook. And one of the other things they talk about is how the fuck is my Fox News watching? And I'm talking about me, Christina, family, Getting information on Facebook and they claim that like my mom cites all of these articles and videos on Facebook. 
I am not, now granted, I do not go on Facebook anymore, but I used to, and even when this was happening with parents being radicalized, I was going on Facebook and I'm like, I'm not seeing any of these things. They're putting news stories in front of you that they know will trigger you psychologically. When you are triggered psychologically, you are going to react fast. And when you're already in the app, the, you're, you're, the ways that you are going to react are going to be within the fucking app. So you're going to post something and you go, I fucking knew it, libtard snowflake piece of shit. They are triggering you purposely. And in Google, Google is a piece of shit fucking company too. <laughs> they started out really ethical. And, they, and it's really interesting the conversations had in this documentary about ethical technology, humane technology, and how important it is. A lot of this tech people that used to work at Google and Facebook are like, I wouldn't, I won't let my child use Facebook. They're not allowed, and they're not allowed to use Google. I'm like, God damn. If you, if, if I type in Donald Trump is onto Google, a lot of uh, answers will populate before I finish typing up the sentence. But those populations are specific to where in the country or in the world you are. And talk about psychological triggers. They will be populated in a way to trigger you. So if they will have info on you knowing that you are a diehard Donald Trump fan and you've been to his rallies, they're going to put some shit in that Donald Trump is to fucking piss you off and be more angry at the other side. And they basically, at the end of the documentary, this one guy, oh, he was so hot. Uh, he had a hot family, too. well, a hot wife and then kids. I'm not going to say they're hot because that's, they're not. Um, but this, this guy was just gorgeous and, and beautifully lit in this documentary. Uh, he was talking about, um, the guy interviewing him was like, what are you most afraid of? And this guy goes, civil war. We are so divided. But the, the division is, the, the news outlets are, are, are fueling it 100%. The ones, even the ones I watch, CNN, like I love CNN. I love, I watch Don Lemon and I watch uh, mm, mm, my daddy Cuomo. Um, and they have a lot of it really interesting guests on that talk about, uh, that have discussions about topics. And I'm like, this is a really great conversation. But a lot of times CNN does what every other fucking news organization does. They try to stoke your fear and they try to trigger you and they try to piss you off. News outlets with those fucking headlines, they're just trying to piss you off. It's so insulting to human intelligence. Um, and one of the people that worked at Facebook, uh, this was one of his quotes, we want to psychologically figure out how to manipulate you as fast as possible. I mean, just the other day, I, was, I went to the bathroom to take a poopy, to take a big old dumpity humpity dump. And I brought my phone in to the bathroom with me. And I ended up, on the toilet for a lot longer than I intended to. And I noticed that I was on the toilet because my legs started going numb, my feet. My feet started going numb. And it was because I was leaning on the tops of my knees with both elbows really hard because I was perusing Instagram. And so if you get upset with yourself that you, that you lose hours of your day from being sucked into Instagram, Please know that the developers at Instagram have specifically formulated that fucking software to turn you into that. Okay? It's not cute. In fact, it's fucked up. It's fucked up. It's just, it's just, it's so, oh my God, got me, it got me mad. But there was a, you know, there was a, a happy ending in that they gave you tips on how you can use social media responsibly. And man, it makes me so sad 
to, well, when we were used to allowed to walk into restaurants, I know some states are doing it prematurely and some are doing it at a, you know, at a pace that makes sense. But when I would walk into a restaurant and see an entire family all on their phones, guys, that is fucked up. It, but it's not your fault. But you have to be the one to stop it. So it's, it's this really, it's, this, it's a kerfuffle. It's a kerfuffle. And I really try hard and, I, and, and it's going to take continuous practice on my part. When I hang out with friends, every time I go to a friend's house, on my way there, if I take an Uber, I don't look at my phone, I look out the window. Just to get used to being stimulated over things that are actually there and not on a screen in hopes that when I enter my friend's home, I don't fucking take my phone out. Or if I do, it's to take a video of our dogs playing. You know what I mean? Like something like that. But we really, where is the human connection? And I'm starting to realize, I mean, maybe I'm really affected by this specifically because I've noticed how many times I've gotten sucked up into social media, mostly Instagram. And it's like, God damn. It's good to know, though, that they hired people and paid them millions of dollars to figure out how to trick us. And when I say it's good to know, I mean that in that, well, I'm not a stupid, stupid woman, I guess. I just fell for it just like everybody else. You know? Oh, man. Yeah, so last Saturday I had, uh, had our first new New York event with D Guerreros. It was so much fun. We capped the tickets at 50. We sold them out immediately. Uh, we did temperature checks. We had a meeting place because she knows the owners of this gorgeous Italian cafe right around the corner. And uh, so we did temperature checks and um, we had people, you know, sit apart. We like put X's six feet apart. So we, you know, did our part to make it as safe as possible. Um, I mean, you're, of course, you're still taking a risk. And it, it was an outdoor show. It was so much fun. It was so much fun because Dee and I really want to uh, reinvigorate the human spirit in New York City because let me tell you something. I'm, I hope you've heard the sentiment echoed a lot, but girl, New York's not dead, okay? New York is so not dead. It is so alive and it is, it's, I wouldn't say thriving in a lot of areas because, I mean, God, industries like Broadway, oh. Oh, if you're a Broadway performer or you work in Broadway, my heart goes out to you. I'm sure because you're a creative person, you're figuring out how to utilize your creativity. Because like I said at the very first episode of The Voices in Our Heads, your creativity is your dignity. Whether you're creative professionally or not, it's your dignity, dude. Okay? So to be at a level where you are in a Broadway show and then to have that happen, I can't even imagine what it does to your psyche. So... My heart goes out to you. So when I say New York is thriving, I don't, I don't mean in areas like that. It's just it's not thriving everywhere. And boy, are a lot of people getting shot. People are shooting other people. It's happening a lot. It's happening a lot. Because I have the Citizen app. And mm-hmm, there's a lot of people getting shot. So, so you know, there's, there's cleaning up to do in a lot of ways. But we really wanted to just have people come out, experience intellectual stimulation through comedy, and, and we, we let go of all these balloons at the end, which we're not going to do because technically that is littering. So good point. Didn't really realize that. We just wanted to be whimsical. But, you know, it was just a really beautiful night. It was wonderful. It went how I wanted it to go and better. Um, and, but I was experiencing during this the period from Satan herself. Okay. I'm talking I had a pad and a tampon. Guys, get your dicks out because this is about to get horny. I had to change it every hour. I was bleeding so much. I'm like, 
Jesus Christ. I've never had a period like that. I'm like, is it, you know, you don't have sex for eight months and then God just punishes you. It's like, which God are we praying to? The one that wants us to be prude or the one that wants us to be a slut? Or who is this? Is anybody having a good time? I had a good time on Saturday night, but I was bleeding so much. I had to go home and I, you know, I was excited to go and see Kevin. And usually pretty much every night around two in the morning, I think to myself, man, I want to order a, a toasted everything bagel with butter and a, and, a, and a chocolate peanut butter protein shake. Not a milkshake, a chocolate peanut butter protein shake. And then I say, I say to myself, I go, Christina, it's two in the morning. No, just because you have an impulse doesn't mean you have to act on it, you silly fuck. And then I go, yeah, you're right. But man, when I am on my period, I'm like, oh, we're getting that fucking protein shake and bagel. So after the show, uh, I was excited to hang out with my dog, get high, get stoned, get half the weed, order a milkshake, or well, pro- a protein shake and a bagel and just devour it and play with Kevin and then just go to bed. Um, so I got, I was excited because I was like, I never indulged on the late night cravings uh, to the point of ordering from a restaurant in the middle of the night. But I was like, I'm going to do it. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I named my dog Kevin, a person name, is when I go to open the door at 2 a.m. because I'm stoned and I want my protein shake and my bagel uh, before I open the door because I'm a woman who lives alone in New York City and y'all people are getting shot. So I go, all right, Kevin, you sit down. I'll take this one, okay? Kevin, no, stay right there, Kevin. I got this. I got this, you big manly man <laughs> stud. And then I open it and I'm like, Kevin's here. Don't try anything. And they're like, oh, I, I wasn't. And I'm like, well, okay. So it was 2 a.m. And so I ordered it and I was so excited. And then I do that thing at 2 a.m. when I'm stoned where I order food and then I forget I order food. And then when the buzzer rings, I'm like, hallelujah. Um, but I went downstairs to put my glasses on because my eyes was feeling dry. And when I went downstairs, I heard on the other side of my door because my bedroom's in the basement of the building I live in. There's a door that leads to the hallway. Right across from that is the trash and the laundry. And right outside my door, I heard what I can only describe as... Um, how do I describe this? A family of rats dying slowly in traps. I mean, moans. I mean, like, oh, just, just ter- terrible sounds of pain from a family of rats dying slowly in a trap. And I was like, oh, that's not good. Okay. You know what? Fuck it. Like, I'll, I'll sleep on the couch. <laughs> You know, making lemonade. And then the buzzer rings and it's my fucking bagel and the protein shake. And I was like, hallelujah. And I ran upstairs to get it. And then I fell halfway down the stairs trying to get up the stairs because I was so excited. And then I forgot I was wearing my socks without the rubber on the bottom. And y'all, I have wooden steps. So I done fell and hurt my booty. And I was like, that's okay. It's okay. And then I got them and I got the bagel and, and the protein shake. And I, I went to eat it. And, um, and, uh, <laughs> and the bagel tasted like it was seven years old <laughs> like it was unable to be broken down by the human digestive system <laughs> and it was just I just found myself laughing this is not a prolific story it's just to say I had a great show and then when I went home like just shit like so comically started going wrong but like it was like someone was playing a joke on me and I was laughing my ass off the whole night because I was like what else are you gonna do you know and it uh, also, also, in the scheme of things, nothing that was happening to me was ba- really that bad. 
the family of rats dying slowly in the trap right outside my bedroom where I lay my little head down to go to sleep. That, you know, you work around it. You work around it. The bagel, you know, not all bagels are going to be good. Some bagels are going to taste like they were up a bunghole. All right, so you throw it out. It's fine. You know, and if the bagel is $2. I'm not going to be like calling them and be like, excuse me, but your bagel tasted like ass and balls. You know, you just, I'm not going to do that. I'm not, I'm not one of the, I don't, I don't do that. But I gobbled up that protein shake and got a head freeze that I have not gotten since I was six. Okay, I'm talking about my head felt like I was I was eating out Alaska for about an hour. I've never had a head freeze last that long. And it could have been in maybe it was because I was just really injured by the time I gave myself the head freeze because my tailbone, it still hurts. It still hurts. And then I was like, all right. So this isn't going that great. Um, I want to do one more thing before I go to bed tonight. Let me unload the dishwasher. So I go to unload the dishwasher. The first glass I take out, that I've, and I've never, I've lived here 10 years, guys, never done this. I take the glass out and just, I don't even, I didn't do it on purpose, but it was like I did. Smashed it on the counter and it shattered. Boy, did it shatter. And Kevin came running over. I'm like, well, now this will really make my night up. Big old poop stack. If Kevin got cut, but he didn't. But it was just so funny. <laughs> it was just so, it's just, it was really funny. It was really funny, and I wanted to share it with you. Before we get into this terrible chapter in Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. Okay, guys, we're going to go into this. I'm going to be reading a lot from this chapter. Um, I usually give you the highlights, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be going into it a little bit more because this one um, hit me hard and it might hit you hard. It's about parents and how they fuck us up or don't fuck us up. But a lot of times, even the best parent can fuck us up. Uh, and it's chapter 13 of Nathaniel Brandon's Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. The title of the chapter is Nurturing a Child's Self-Esteem. Okay, so I'm going to do some reading of the parts that I found most poignant. And I, if you're driving, you know, pull over if, if, you, if, you, if you got daddy issues or mommy issues. Um, okay, so let's get into it, shall we? The proper aim of parental nurturing is to prepare a child for independent survival as an adult. An infant begins in a condition of total dependency, which we're one of the very few mammals where the infant child is totally reliant, I'm adding this part, on the parent. If his or her upbringing is successful, the young man or woman will be have evolved out of that uh, dependency into a self-respecting and self-responsible human being who is able to respond to the challenges of life competently and enthusiastically. He or she will be self-supporting, not merely financially, but intellectually and psychologically. Okay, so none of us, basically, maybe one of us. It is not difficult to observe that most people are stranded somewhere along this path of development. It's <laughs> an understatement of the goddamn century. Nonetheless, as I discuss in Honoring the Self, the central goal of the maturational process is evolution towards autonomy. Okay? Evolution towards autonomy. And there's a lot of kids that grow up and then their parents are like, my baby, don't grow up. And it's like, bitch, did you want me to be a person or not? Was your intention to born to 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 birth a babysitter for you? I'm not. That's not me. I'm just you know a lot of because it's it's like a common trope that we laugh at, where we're ready to leave the house and get a, go to college or do you know do a big thing like something that signifies that we're an adult and our parents have a meltdown, 
And it's like, well, what'd you think was going to happen? That I was going to grow up until about eight and then grow back down? That's not how that works. But a lot of parents feel that way. And it, and it, it fucks us up, man. And of course they don't intend that. But it's very, it's appropriate if you feel, if you feel upset, if you feel any type of grief with how you were raised, it's appropriate to feel that. And if you don't feel that, or if you do feel that, excuse me, that doesn't mean your parent's a bad person. You know, everyone's just trying the goddamn best out here. It is not difficult to observe that most people are stranded somewhere along the path of, of this path of development. Nonetheless, as I discuss in Honoring the Self, the central goal of the maturational process is evolution towards autonomy. I repeated that, but you know what? Fuck you. It is an old and excellent adage that effective parenting consists first of giving a child roots to grow and then wings to fly. The security of a firm base and the self-confidence one, uh, one day to leave it. Children do not grow up in a vacuum. They grow up in a social context. Indeed, much of the drama of unfolding individuation, oops, <laughs> of individuation and autonomy occurs and can only occur in and through encounters with other human beings. In the first encounters of childhood, a child can experience the safety and security that allows a self to emerge or the terror and instability that fractures the self before it is fully formed. In subsequent encounters, a child can experience being accepted and respected or rejected and demeaned. And I don't know about you, but I want to be accepted and respected. Accepted and respected. Accepted and respected. That's all I want. That's all I've ever wanted. I want everyone to accept and respect me. And this is, it's not going to happen, but you got to get that as a kid. Because if you're not accepted and, re and respected, you're rejected and demeaned. <laughs> that is a shit greeting card. A child can experience the appropriate balance of protection and freedom or the overprotectiveness that inf infantilizes or the underprotectiveness that demands of the child resources that may not yet exist. Such experiences, as well as others we will discuss, contribute to the kind of self and self-esteem that develops over time. Um, oh, God, this fucking chapter, man. This chapter, this chapter is a little bit of a roller coaster. Uh, okay, basic safety and security. Let's get into that. Beginning life in a condition of total dependency, a child has no more basic requirement as far as parental behavior is concerned than that of safety and security. This entails the satisfaction of physiological needs, protections from the elements and basic caretaking in all its obvious aspects. It contains the creation of an environment in which the child can feel nurtured and safe. In my work with adults, I often see the long-term effects of one form of trauma associated with the frustration of this need, a child's repeated experience of terror at the hands of adults. And when he says the need, he's referring to basic safety and security. Certain therapy clients convey a quality of fear or anxiety that seems to reach back to the first months of life and to invade the deepest structure of the psyche. Such clients are distinguished not only by the intensity of their anxiety, nor by its pervasiveness, but by the fact that one senses that one person experiencing the anxiety is not the adult but rather a child or even an infant inside that adult's body, or more precisely, inside the adult's psyche. These clients report that they have had feelings of basic terror as far back as they can remember. <sighs> Setting aside the possibility of birth trauma, 
I mean, that is trauma, I guess, being born. I didn't ask to come into this world, you pieces of shit. Wow, our son's a real poet. We'll name him Edgar Allan Poe. Um, setting aside the possibility of birth trauma, there are two factors to be considered here. The first is objective circumstances of the environment and the treatment they received as children. The second is the question of an innate disposition to experience anxiety. Some individuals' threshold is almost certainly lower than others. And I mean, look around you. Look at your friends. You can tell if you think of all of your friends and your family members assess their level of anxiety assess your own level of anxiety we uh, you know a lot of a lot of times I used to think anxiety was just like I don't know afraid that a car is gonna run me over when I'm walking down the sidewalk but anxiety comes up in forms and shapes that are uh less obvious to me and they all revolve around worrying but you know I think of my friends and my family and, and all the people in my life and all the people I've met and you can tell when someone walks up to you and they just have you could tell you can read their energy we can read their energy uh, the terror might be of a physically violent father, a moody, unpredictable, emotionally disturbed mother. Yeah, it could be that. A menacing family member whose scowl conjures up images of unimaginable torture. A terror from which there is no escape and that plunges the child into unbearable feelings of helplessness. Woo, who's got the willies? A nurse, um, a nurse of 38, Sonia, would involuntarily flinch if I inadvertently raised my voice slightly, especially while shifting in my chair. She claimed that her earliest memories were of her mother and father screaming at each other while she lay in her crib with her own cries ignored. Her sense that the world is a hostile and dangerous place was almost cellular. Okay. She was motivated by fear in almost all of her choices and actions with negative consequences for her self-esteem. I suspected that she came into this world with a greater than average disposition to experience anxiety, made immeasurably worse by two parents under the sway of the irrational within themselves. God, this guy's a good writer. But that's, that's important because I, I believe, I do believe, because siblings are different. Siblings can have, you can be a fucking exact twin. What's the word? Uh, uh, identical <laughs> twin. <laughs> you know, the exact DNA and shit. You could be an identical twin and be, you know, raised by the same family and have different experiences of that parent. So, but you also could come into the world more predisposed to anxiety. So know that, you know, it's not, and that, I guess that helps me in that I never want it to be my parents' fault and I never want them to be wrong or bad at anything. Like I really protected the reputation of my parents to my fucking self up until about a year ago very exhausting a 34 year old professor of uh, philo- uh philosophy <laughs> blue, blue. a 34 year old professor of philosophy edgar said his earliest memories were of being forced to stand on the bed while his father a distinguished and respected physician in his community beat him violently with a strap quote my cries never made him uh, never could never make him stop it was as if he were insane he could destroy me and there was nothing i could do that feeling has never left me. I'm 34 years old, and I still feel that in the face of any kind of danger, I have no means of defending myself. I'm afraid. I've always been afraid. I can't imagine who I would be without my fear. Woof de doo, guys. Woof. Woof, woof, woof. The greater a child's terror, 
the earlier and the earlier it is experienced, the harder the task of building a strong and healthy sense of self. Ugh, yeah, no shit, Nathaniel. That's why I had to read this book fucking eight goddamn times. Um, today, we're, then we're going to talk about nurturing through touch. This is an interesting one. Today, we know that touch is essential for a child's healthy development. In its absence, children can die, even when other needs are met. <sighs> through touch, it just makes me so sad. Like, uh, that, it, it just, oh, God, human creatures are, they're born, you're born, you guys are all born... You, I'm talking to you, listening to this right now. It, regardless of whether you're a piece of shit adult or not, you were born as a precious little angel baby. And all you needed to survive was, I mean, you needed a bunch. You needed clothes and you needed your diaper changed, but you needed to be touched. You need love. We need love to survive. And you could communicate love through touch. Uh, anyway, through touch, we send sensory stimulation. That's why I'm so fucking on edge because I haven't had sex, guys. Sorry, that was an interjection. Through touch, we send sensory stimulation that helps the infant's brain to develop. Through touch, we convey love, caring, comfort, support, nurturing. Through touch, we establish contact between one human being and another. Research shows that touch, such as massage, can profoundly affect health. At some level, this is, uh, this is often known intuitively because in non-Western parts of the world, the massaging of babies is standard practice so sweet in the west it is not and one reason that has been suggested is the bias against the body found in christianity motherfuck i mean that's obviously he's just saying that as a suggestion but interesting huh you know brings a whole new phrase to christ on a cracker uh children who grow up with little experience of being touched often, carry an ache deep within them that never entirely vanishes. Oh, God. There is a hole in their self-regard. Why could I never sit on my father's knee, clients will say. Why did mother convey such reticence, even disgust about physical touch? The unspoken sentence is, why did they not love me enough to want to hold me? And sometimes, if my own parents didn't want to touch me, how can I expect anyone else to want to? Woo, a little dose of sad for you on a Wednesday. Okay, guys, we're thinking, we're interrogating, we're figuring it out. It's going to be okay. The, pa the pain of this childhood deprivation is difficult to bear. Usually it is repressed. Consciousness contracts and psychic numbing is evoked. Psychic numbing. I've talked about that a lot. Uh, as, a, as a survival strategy to make uh, existence tolerable. Self-awareness is avoided. This is often the start of a pattern that lasts a lifetime. You telling me, Doc? Um, and now let's talk about love. A child who is treated with love tends to internalize the feeling and to experience him or herself as lovable. Love is conveyed by verbal expression, nurturing actions, and the joy and pleasure we show in the sheer fact of the child's being. And one of the things my therapist would tell me a lot, and I think I've echoed this a bunch on this podcast, is a, a, a parent should take joy in the mere fact that their child is experiencing joy. She's really pressed how important that is. And I, and I tell her a lot. I'm like, there were, I mean, I have home videos. I have proof of me being, you know, two years old. And my parents are just like lit up. They're so happy. I mean, I was a cute fucking kid. But they were really happy. But then, you know, Shit can get fucked up if the doctor over-medicates your mom and she's a walking zombie. So 
it's just it's just it's just wild how how easy it is to fuck up a kid uh where was I? Okay. An effective parent can convey anger or disappointment without signaling withdrawal of love. Now that's important, y'all. I'm going to repeat it on purpose. An effective parent can convey anger or disappointment without signaling withdrawal of love. An effective parent can teach without resorting to rejection. The value of the child as a human being is not on trial. And this is something almost all parents do. Love is not, uh, is not felt to be real when it is always tied to performance, tied to living up to mother or father's expectations, and is withdrawn from time to time as a means of manipulating obedience and conformity. Love is not felt to be real when the child receives subtle or unsubtle messages to the effect of, quote, you are not enough. Unfortunately, many of us receive such messages. You may have potential, but you are unacceptable as you are. You need to be fixed. One day you may be enough, but not now. You will be enough only if you fulfill our expectations. I am enough does not mean I have nothing to learn and nowhere to go grow. It means I accept myself as a value, uh, as a value as I am. Motherfucker. Now let's talk about motherfucking acceptance, y'all. Acceptance, okay. A child whose thoughts and feelings are treated with acceptance tends to internalize the response and to learn self-acceptance. Acceptance is conveyed not by agreement, which is not always possible, but by listening to and acknowledging the child's thoughts and feelings and by not chastising, arguing, lecturing, psychologizing, or insulting. If a child is repeatedly told that he or she must not feel this, must not feel that, the child is encouraged to deny and disown feelings or emotions in order to please or placate the parents. Do you know how many times I have heard parents say to their little boys, stop crying? Or to a, ch a child, I've heard stop crying so many times. Guys, don't tell your kids to stop crying. They're fucking crying for a reason. And if you tell them to stop, you are teaching them to disown their own feelings. And you think they're going to date somebody that's actually good for them in the future? Because they're not. That was a little personal. Um, if normal expressions of excitement, anger, happiness, sexuality longing and fear are treated as unacceptable or wrong or sinful or otherwise distasteful to parents the child may disown and reject more and more of the self uh, of the self to belong to be loved to avoid the terror of abandonment we do not serve a child's development by making self repudiation repudiation whoops second time's a charm we do not serve a child's development by making self repudiation the price of our love and Man, I think about when my, when my fucking, when my mom, and we had already gotten through this issue, but I, it really, I didn't really uh, grieve for this, uh, this incident. And it's one of the reasons why I'm not speaking to them right now is because I need to get through this. But it is, you know, my, I was at a restaurant with some family members and my mom had asked me if I had had sex, if I was still a virgin. And I was 16 and I didn't want to lie to her. So I said, I, I, yes, I have had sex. So I'm, I'm not a virgin. And she didn't talk to me the rest of the evening. That fucked me up. <sighs> Man, 
more than I can say. So if you want your kid to grow up and do a sex podcast where they interview every guy you've ever fucked, call him a whore, basically. That really, really fucked me up. Anyway, let's go to respect. Respect. A child who receives respect from adults tends to learn self-respect. Respect is conveyed by addressing a child with the courtesy one normally extends to adults. As child psychologist Haim Gnoti used to observe, if a visiting guest accidentally spills a drink, we do not say, oh, you are so sloppy, what's the matter with you? But then why do we say such statements are appropriate for our children who are much more important to us than the visitor? Great point. Surely it would be more appropriate to say something to the child like, you've spilled your drink. Will you get me some paper towels from the kitchen? I mean, and that is fucking, I mean, no parent. Because we're human beings and we're flawed. And also we weren't parented perfectly. No one was parented perfectly. Um, I can, every person listening to this can probably remember a time where you, you, you accidentally did something and your parent fucking flipped out on you. And if you really think about it, that's terrible. Because they were inconvenienced, because they were annoyed, because they were pissed off, because they were frustrated, because whatever the fuck's going on in their life that has nothing to do with us, they take it out on us, and then we grow up to be people, please, and pieces of shit. But then we develop and, and you know, evolve. <laughs> I recall a client once saying to me, my father talks to any busboy with more courtesy than he's ever extended to me. Please and thank you are words that acknowledge dignity, that of the speaker as well as the listener. Parents need to be informed. And this is my favorite quote of the book. Be careful what you say to your children. They may agree with you. Before calling a child stupid or clumsy or bad or a disappointment, consider the question, is this how I want to raise my child to experience him or herself? Mm-mm-mm. I'm just going to pause and let that fucking sit. I mean, Jesus Christ. If a child grows up in a home where everyone deals with everyone else with natural, good-natured courtesy, he or she learns principles that apply both to self and to others. So the way you treat your child, you are treating them to treat themselves that way. Okay. Now let's talk about, oh, I love this section, visibility. Visibility. It doesn't mean you got your glasses on. If I say or do something and you respond in a way that I perceive as congruent in terms of my own behavior, if I become playful and you become playful in turn, or if I express joy and you show understanding of my state, or if I express sadness and you convey empathy, or if I do something I am proud of and you smile in admiration, I feel seen and understood by you. I feel visible. In contrast, if I say or do something and you respond in a way that makes no sense to me in terms of my own behavior, if I become playful and you react as if I were being hostile, oh, I'm getting so triggered, <laughs> or if I express joy and you display impatience and tell me not to be silly, or if I experience sadness and you accuse me of pretending, oh, ugh. Or if I do something I am proud of and you react with condemnation, I do not feel seen and understood. I feel invisible. To feel visible to you, I do not require your agreement with what I am saying. We might be having a philosophical or political discussion. Yeah, you know, maybe a political discussion. And we might hold different viewpoints, but if we show understanding 
of what the other is saying. And if our responses are congruent in terms of that, we can continue to feel visible to each other and even in the midst of arguing, be having a thoroughly enjoyable good time. And I love, I'm going to quote a comedian who's, you know, sexually assaulted people. So, uh, you know, it's Louis C.K. He had this bit that's really good. He talks about uh, abortion. And he was basically like, you either think abortion is murdering a baby or you think of it like taking a shit. And he goes more into the bit, but he talks about, you know, there are people outside, like people outside the abortion clinic. Because that's one of the reasons why I I thought of volunteering to escort um, women to abortion clinics. And uh, I knew, though, I was asking my friend who does it, I'm like, are there protesters there? Because I don't know that I could handle that. I would I would probably lose my not mind and not be helpful, so I shouldn't be doing that job. I should be volunteering for that job. Um, but but th- that's a it's a good example because if you believe if you truly believe abortion is murdering a baby, and and I can tell you with every cell of my being, I do not see it that way. But if you see it that way, and I want to connect with you and actually have a conversation with you, and this is why it's hard for me to have that abortion argument with people who 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 don't think women should have the right to choose what to do with their own body. It's very difficult for me. But if I'm having a conversation with you and you truly believe that it is murdering a baby, that's terrible. Of course you're going to be upset. And you care so much about babies getting murdered that you're going to stand outside and beg people not to do it. It's really difficult for me to not see that as you begging me to give up the right to my own vagina. And I will never see it in any other way. However, that bit put some perspective into my head uh, that perhaps might give me a little bit more patience when, when you know, getting bombarded with that topic because that's certainly not a discussion that I would go into uh, willingly because I'm not at the point in my growth where I can uh, have a, <laughs> a conversation <laughs> that will go anywhere productive. Uh, but, you know, I, I thought about that bit because it's like, wow, if I, so if I acknowledged that you are in so much pain and terror and you go outside these abortion clinics every day because you believe that little babies are being murdered. Yeah, I, I understand. No one wants babies to get murdered. So that gave me some, that gave me some perspective. Um, so I would able to have a conversation and make that person feel visible. But would they make me feel visible? I don't know. We, we, we shall see in the future if that ever happens. Okay, continuing. From childhood on, we receive from human beings some measure of appropriate feedback. Without it, we could not survive. Throughout our life, there will be people whose responses will allow us to feel superficially visible and, if we are fortunate, a few people with whom we feel visible in a more po- profound way. Oh, and that's the other thing I wanted to add to that section I just read in terms of feeling visible, if I become playful and you react as if I'm being hostile, that fucks up a kid so bad. That is basically having a parent with mental illness. You might not get that all of the time, but a lot of the times as a child, you are going to be met with reactions to your behavior that are not congruent with your actual behavior. And a child cannot think for themselves in that big of a way yet. So it's gonna fuck you up, especially if the mental illness is not acknowledged and it's not explained. It's, it's just, and, and it, I don't want to ever dissuade somebody who's mentally ill from procreating because that, it can be done, y'all. But 
and I'm sure there are books on how to do that, but man, I cannot tell you how much that fucked me up and how much I see that it fucks up other people. And I've been, I've been, I really react strongly when a person in my life or, or a stranger, a complete stranger reacts as if I'm doing something that I'm not actually doing. I lose my goddamn mind because it's a trigger. Working with adults in psychotherapy, I frequently, uh, I see the frequency with which the pain of invisibility in their home life as children is clearly central to their development mental problems and to their insecurities in adult relationships. Thus, uh, and these are some sentence stems that he says. The sentence is, if I had felt visible to my parents, and these are some answers that he gives. Maybe you can resonate with some of these. I wouldn't feel so alienated from people today. I wouldn't have felt like a member or I would have felt, if I was visible to my parents, I would have felt like a member of the human race. I would have felt safe. I would have felt visible to myself. I would have felt loved. I would have felt there was hope. I would have felt like one of the family. I would have felt connected. I would be sane. I would be, have been helped to understand myself. I would have felt I had a home. I would have felt I belonged. If a child says unhappily, I didn't get the part in my, uh, in my school play. And the mother answers empathetically, that must hurt. The child feels visible. <sighs> I love that example. What, a child, what does a child feel if mother answers sharply, do you think you'll always get what you want in life? <laughs> um, ugh, that's one area. I mean, God, my mom really, she, su- she supported my creativity. Both my parents did, even though they were a little disappointed when I was like, I don't want to be a doctor anymore, JK. I want to be a comedian. They're like, oh, okay. But they were really supportive. And I did, I was, man, they were really supportive in that way. And that's why I was like, oh, that was the one area in my life, my creativity, where I felt very confident because my parents were so supportive and encouraging and loving and came to all my things, even when my mom was in the midst of a mental breakdown. Um, and that's why I was like, oh, I can do this. And then I did it. So if a child bursts into the house full of joy and excitement and mother says, smiling, you're happy today, the child feels visible. What does a child feel if mother screams, do you have to make so much noise? You're so selfish and inconsiderate. What's the matter with you? Oh, God, that's so sad. Uh, <laughs> age-appropriate nurturing. If a, parent, uh, if a parent's goal is to support the child's independence, one of the ways this is achieved is to offer a child choices in keeping with the child's level of development. A mother may not think it advisable to ask her five-year-old whether he or she wants to wear a sweater, but she can offer a choice of two sweaters. Some children are eager for an adult advice when it is not necessary. It is helpful to respond, what do you think? Sweet. Now on to praise and criticism. Loving parents concerned to support the self-esteem of their children may believe that the way to do that is with praise, but inappropriate praise can be as harmful to self-esteem as inappropriate criticism. (sighs) And let me tell you, um, yeah. If we st- uh, so here's a uh, if we state what we like and appreciate about the child's actions and accomplishments, we remain factual and descriptive. We leave it to the child to do the evaluating. And I mean, this is like how people don't get a course on parenting and they could just fucking pop a baby out and not know what the fuck they're doing, which is most people. It's just wild, y'all. It's wild. It's wild. I pay taxes. Can we do a fund a parenting class with my tax money, please? Um. 
Here's an example of that process. Marsha, age 12, helped the teacher. Oh, this is such a good example. But it's really evolved, man, the way this teacher is, is to this kid. I mean, Jesus Christ, we owe a lot to teachers. Whew. Marsha, age 12, helped the teacher rearrange the books in the class library. The teacher avoided personal pra- uh, praise, such as, you did a good job, you're a hard worker, you are a good librarian. Instead, she described what Marsha accomplished. The books are all in order now. It'll be easy for the children to find any book they want. It was a difficult job, but you did it. Thank you. <sighs> the, chi- the teacher's words of recognition allowed Marsha to make her own inference. My teacher likes the job I did. I am a good worker. That is a huge thing. When I read that for the first time, I was like, well, God damn, no one's talked to me like that. It's a very evolved way of thinking. Man, it's just it's so, like describing what they did and saying, oh, that must have been hard, but you did it. And then the kid can go, yeah, I did a good job. Wow. I mean, wow. Makes you think about uh, what Donald Trump's dad said to him and how he definitely believed it. And I, and, I, and I do, I do, I know that man has caused destruction and ruin in ways that not many other people have. But I will never not hold a sense of empathy for what his father said to him. And if you don't hold that, that's okay. I, I need you to know that. That's totally okay. You're not, you, you're not obliged to, all right? Uh, the more specifically targeted our praise, the more meaningful it is to the child. Praise that is generalized and abstract leaves the child wondering what exactly is being praised. It's not helpful. Not only does praise need to be specific, it needs to be uh, commensurate with its object. Overblown or grandiose praise tends to be overwhelming and anxiety-provoking because the child knows it did not match his or her self-perceptions, a problem that is avoided by descriptions of behavior plus expressions of appreciation that omit these unrealistic evaluations. So if you're like, oh my God, you're the best person ever. And the kid just fucking put a block together. You gotta fuck the kid up. So easy to fuck the kid up. Some parents are intent on hoping their children's self-esteem, on on helping their children's self-esteem, but they praise globally, indiscriminately, and extravagantly. At best, this does not work. At worst, it backfires. The child feels invisible and anxious. In addition, this policy tends to produce approval addicts, children who cannot take a step without looking for praise and who feel disvalued if it is not forthcoming. If we wish to nurture autonomy, always leave space for the child to make his or her own evaluations after we have described the behavior. Leave the child free of the pressure of our judgments. Oh, that is so, oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Help create a context in which independent thinking can occur. When we express our pleasure in an appreciation of a child's questions or observations or thoughtfulness, we are encouraging the exercise of consciousness. When we respond positively and respectfully to a child's efforts at self-expression, we encourage self-assertiveness. When we acknowledge and show appreciation for the ch- a child's truthfulness, we encourage integrity. As to criticism, it needs to be directed only at a child's behavior, never at the child. The principle is describe the behavior, hitting a sibling or breaking a promise. Describe your feeling about it, anger, disappointment. Describe what you want done, if anything. 
and omit character assassination. I repeat, omit character assassination of your fucking kid, okay? When I speak of describing your feelings, I mean statements like, I feel disappointed, or I feel dismayed, or I feel angry. I do not mean statements like, I feel you are the most rotten kid who ever lived. I mean, well, yeah, that's terrible. Which is not a description of a feeling, but of a thought, judgment, or evaluation concealed in the language of a feeling. There is no such emotion as, you are the most rotten kid who ever lived. The actual emotion here is rage, and the desire is to inflict pain. Yeah, motherfucker. No good purpose is ever served by assaulting a child's self-esteem. This is the first rule of effective criticism. We do not inspire better behavior by impugning, um, impugning, impugning? Well, I-M-P-U-G-N-I-N-G is how that's spelled. A child's worth. And you know what? Sometimes I don't know how to pronounce words. And that's okay. We do not inspire a better behavior by fucking up a child's worth, intelligence, morality, character, intentions, or psychology. No one was ever made good by being informed that he or she was bad. Nor by being told you're just like, and then in parentheses, somebody already viewed as reprehensible. Attacks on self-esteem tend to increase the likelihood that the unwanted behavior will happen again. Since I am bad, I will behave badly. Self-fulfilling prophecy, motherfuckers! Self-fulfilling prophecy, motherfuckers. Okay, I'm going to get through this because well, I'm over an hour. But that's okay. This is important. Many in adult psychotherapy complains... Um, many an adult in psychotherapy complains of hearing the internalized voices of mother or father telling them that they are bad, rotten, stupid, or worthless. Often they struggle towards a life, towards a better life against the gravitational pull of those abusive terms, fighting not to, to succumb to their parents' dark view of them. <sighs> yeah. Thank God. I mean, my parents never did it, insulted me. So that was, that was good, I guess. That was good. Because some, some of my friends I know, their parents straight up called them fat when they weren't even fat. Like, first of all, don't call your fucking kid fat. Who feeds them? You do, you fat fuck. Don't call your kid fat. God, you know, that it just, just fucks up. That just it'll fuck you up. I have a friend whose parent called, called them fat as a kid and they have a beautiful, beautiful body and they eat well and they exercise often and they look at their body and all they see is a deflated scarecrow. It's so sad. It's so sad. It's so sad. And we all know, we've all seen in our lives the aftermath of a parent bullying a child. Donald Trump. Uh, dealing with mistakes. How our parents respond when children make mistakes can be fateful for self-esteem. If a child is chastised for making a mistake or ridiculed, humiliated, or punished, or if the parent steps in impatiently and says, here, let me do it. He or she cannot feel free to struggle and learn. A natural process of growth is sabotaged. To avoid mistakes becomes a higher priority than to master new challenges. Let that sit with you. <laughs> Who's crying? Uh, given the chance, children will usually learn from their mistakes naturally and spontaneously. Sometimes it can be useful to ask non-critically and non-pedantically. Got that word right. What did you learn? What might you do differently next time? That's a great question. What might you do differently next time? But don't ask you like, what are you going to do differently next time, you piece of shit? <laughs> you know that, though. Uh, the need for sanity. 
There is perhaps nothing more important to know about children than that they need to make sense out of their experience. In effect, they need to know that the universe is rational, even though it's not, and that human existence is knowable, predictable, and stable. It's not. On that foundation, they can build a sense of efficacy because without it, the task is worse than difficult. You know, kids are always asking questions. I always ask questions. I wanted to know why, where, how, who, what, when, how many, who's going to be there, what holes are going to go in, whatever. Like I wanted to know everything all the time. I was just very, I was very curious. But part of it was so I could have some feeling of fucking safety in the world. And kids in general, kids are very curious. I love hanging out with my nephew because he asks so many questions. And I love it. I love it. Oh, God. I love his curiosity. Sanity in the family life is one of a child's most urgent needs if healthy development is to be possible. Now, man, how many of you raise your hand if mommy and daddy fought at the top of their lungs when you were a kid? Yeah, a lot of you is raising your hand, I bet. What that does, the damage that that parents yelling and screaming at each other does to a child, if you are a parent and you fucking scream at anybody in front of your child, I promise you, it will fuck them up, okay? I promise you. <laughs> and, that, and, and, and it's tough, because we yell, we're gonna yell, we're passionate human, we're humans. We're going to yell, but it's, and, it, and it, I gotta say, kudos to anybody who really makes a concerted effort to not yell in front of their kids. You're really making a world of difference and you're putting a human being into the world that will be of a sound mind. Because it's so easy. I mean, I, I don't have kids, so I can be like, don't yell in front of your kid, you stupid fucks. It's gotta be really hard. I can't imagine how hard it's gotta be with the stress if you're having multiple jobs and you can't be with your children as much. I mean, I can't imagine the stress that that has. But please know that if you make a concerted effort not to scream in front of your child, then you might be making up for the time you can't spend with them. You know, making the time that you do spend with them meaningful and loving is it will do a great deal. Uh, but what, okay, what does sanity mean in this context? I don't know, Nathaniel Brandon, what does it mean? It means adults who, for the most part, say what they mean and mean what they say. It means that rules are understandable, consistent, and fair. <sighs> you know, and my dad's not, you know, innocent either in that. And most parents aren't. It means that it means not being punished today for behavior that was ignored or even rewarded yesterday. It means being brought up by parents whose emotional life is more or less graspable and predictable, in contrast to an emotional life punct- uh, punctuated by bouts of anxiety or rage or euphoria unrelated to any discernible cause or pattern. So bipolar. <laughs> And there's so many people who are bipolar. And bipolar looks a lot different with every person. It really does. And I believe that, that mental illness, such as bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, are actually mental injuries, as stated by the psychologist in the Daryl Hammond documentary I talked about, as a way to disconnect psychically from the self because of something shitty that happened to you as a baby or a child. So... Again, it's just a whole shit show of fucking poop. But we can end the cycle by educating ourselves and being curious and reading books like these. Um, 
It means, okay, so sanity, it means a home in which reality is appropriately acknowledged. In contrast to a home in which, for instance, a drunken father misses the chair he meant to sit on and crashes to the floor while mother goes on eating and talking as though nothing has happened. It means parents who practice what they preach, who are willing to admit when they make mistakes and apologize when they know they have been unfair or unreasonable who appeal to a child's wish to understand rather than the wish to avoid pain, who reward and reinforce consciousness in a child rather than discourse and penalize it. And that's, again, you fucking mental illness, man. Mental illness is, uh, is a big problem, certainly in America, if you're listening to this in another country. Uh, you know, maybe you live in a country that treats it with more respect. Maybe you don't, but... Uh, yikes yo yikes children are our future let's treat them well uh, a good structure let's talk about structure a uh, good structure is one that respects the needs individuality and the intelligence of each family member open communication is highly valued such a structure is flexible rather than rigid open and discussable rather than closed and authoritarian which i, I knew a lot of my friends my age their household authoritarian as fuck that's the only way we could describe it. My friends' parents growing up, my parents growing up, the rule, them's is the rules, and you don't say no, you don't protest, you don't do anything. And it's like we have this vision that that is good parenting because it's strict. Where there's no malleable, you can't be malleable in that. If you cannot question your parents, then you can't question when a person is abusing you as an adult. Do you know what I'm saying? There's a link. They appeal to confidence rather than to fear. They encourage self-expression. They uphold the kind of values we associate with individuality and autonomy. Their standards inspire rather than intimidate. Children do not desire unlimited freedom. Most children feel safer and more secure in a structure that is somewhat authoritarian than in no structure at all. Children need limits and feel anxious in their absence. This is one of the reasons they test limits, to be certain that they are there. They need to know that someone is flying the plane. Oh, that's a good one. And like I said, if you are a parent listening to this, kudos to you. I mean, what a job. What a job you have. Woo. Woo. I, that's why I, you know, I used to always want kids my whole life. I'm like, I want like eight kids. And now, I mean, I haven't been touched by man sexually in eight months. So, you know, I need to meet somebody first in order to even consider procreating. But I don't know if I want kids or not. I truly don't know because... The I don't know that I'd be capable of doing all this shit. And I know that no one is, but no, that's not true. Some people are. We all have our days and we're humans and we're flawed. And that's that's cool. That's great. That's cool. It's understandable. You know, we shouldn't beat ourselves up. However, man, if you're a parent, I, I really admire you. I really admire you. Willingly raising a kid. I mean, I admire my parents for doing it. Even though I didn't get everything I needed, I, I really admire my mom all she wanted was to have kids and be a loving mom and I'm like that's a beautiful thing it's a beautiful thing but we need to be talking about what goes into healthy parenting much more frequently than we do okay okay all right um now let's talk about uh I'm gonna we're, we're gonna wrap up soon we're gonna wrap up soon but this is the this is the darker part um because it's but it's uh it's important because a lot of people have gotten through it child abuse when we think of child abuse we think of children who are physically abused or sexually molested 
That such abuse can be catastrophic for a child's self-esteem is widely recognized. It evokes the experience of traumatic powerlessness, the feeling of non-ownership of one's own body, and a sense of agonizing defenselessness that can last a lifetime. However, a more comprehensive examination of what constitutes child abuse would have to include the following items, all of which throw up severe obstacles to the growth of a child's self-esteem. Parents perpetrate child abuse when they, and this one, this is a rough one because uh, a lot of parents, like I, I don't know of any my friend's parents who didn't do any of these things. Um, so here are some things that technically do uh, constitute as, as abuse because they fuck up your kid's self-esteem. Convey that the child is not enough. Chastise the child for expressing unacceptable feelings, unacceptable in quotes. Ridicule or humiliate the child. Convey that the child's thoughts or feelings have no value or importance. Attempt to control the child by shame or guilt. That's a very common one. Overprotect the child and consequently obstruct normal learning and increasing self-reliance. Underprotect the child and consequently obstruct normal ego development. Raise a child with no rules at all and thus no supporting structure or else rules that are contradictory, bewildering, undiscussable, and oppressive. In either case, inhibiting normal growth. Deny a child's perception of reality and implicitly encourage the child to doubt his or her mind. Terrorize a child with physical violence or the threat of it, thus instilling acute fear as an enduring characteristic at the child's core. Treat a child as a sexual object. Teach the child... Teach that the t- child is bad, unworthy, or sinful by nature. When a child's basic needs are frustrated, as they inevitably are when subjected to the above treatment, the result is acute pain. Often embedded in that pain is the feeling, something is wrong with me. Somehow I am defective. And the tragedy of a destructive, self-fulfilling prophecy is set in motion. Urgent issues. Boy, this shit's heavy, huh? When we listen to the stories of adults in therapy, noting the historical circumstances under which tragic decisions were sometimes made, it is not difficult to see what was missing and needed during the childhood years. By extrapolating from wounds, as it were, we can, re, uh, we can deepen our understanding of what prevents wounds from occurring. Over two decades ago, in Breaking Free, I published a list of questions I used in psychotherapy to facilitate explorations into the childhood origins of poor self-esteem. I include here a revised and slightly expanded version of that list as a kind of summoning, uh, summing up of some, although not all, of the issues we have been addressing. They can be useful stimulants to self-examination for individuals as well as evocative guides for parents. So here are some of the questions. Uh, and and I and I, you know, I hopefully am not uh, psychologically triggering anyone while they're like driving a car. I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I hope not. So so I would just say, uh, don't be speeding down the highway when you listen to this. You never know. Um, uh, number one, when you were a child, did your parents' manner of behaving? Uh, and dealing and of dealing with you give you the impression that you were living in a world that was rational, predictable, intelligible, or a world that was contradictory, bewildering, bewildering, unknowable. In your home, did you have the sense of uh, uh, the sense the evident facts were acknowledged and respected, or avoided and denied? And I would say avoided and denied, Mister. Thank you. Were you taught the importance of learning to think 
and of cultivating your intelligence? Did your parents provide you with intellectual stimulation and convey the idea that the use of your mind can be an exciting adventure? Were you encouraged to think independently to develop your critical faculty? Or were you encouraged to be obedient rather than mentally active and questioning? Supplementary questions to this include, did your parents project that it was more important to conform to what others people believed than to discover what is true? And I feel like that happens a lot with religion, man. The, the, the notion, can you, now knowing all of the things that I've just said so far in this episode, can you imagine going to church with your family and then reaching puberty and realizing that you are gay and then having a parent, your parent, your fucking parent reject you because of who you love? Are you fucking kidding me with that bullshit? I, I cannot think of, I mean, that is so heartbreaking. And I mean, we you hear stories about it all the time. Well, certainly if you have a sex podcast, you hear stories about it. That is so fucking heartbreaking to me that a parent can love their child and then suddenly take back that love because of who the child loves. It's just, it's just, it's, 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 it blows my mind. Uh, here's some more questions. Did you feel free to express your views openly without fear or punishment? Did your parents communicate their disapproval of your thoughts, desires, or behaviors by means of humor, teasing, or sarcasm? Were you taught to associate self-expression with humiliation? Oh, gosh. Did your parents treat you with respect? Supplementary questions to this include, were your thoughts, needs, and feelings given consideration? Was your dignity as a human being acknowledged? When you expressed ideas or opinions, were they taken seriously? And that's the other thing when he said, like, over too much praise can fuck you up too. Like, if a kid's like, I have an idea, mom. I want to glue this stick to that chair. And the mom, an, an example of, like, way too much praise is, oh, my God, you fucking genius. The kid's going to be like, well, it's not that fucking genius. Wait, am I a fucking genius? And you're either going to grow up to be a fuck boy or a real insecure piece of shit. <laughs> Do you feel, did you feel that you were psychologically visible to your parents, seen and understood? Did you feel real to them? And I, I, I did not, I did not a lot of the time. Did your parents seem to make a genuine effort to understand you? That I also, and that I think is common. So I feel like when, especially when you get to the teenage years and you're fucking pissed, you're pissed because your hormones and you might be addicted to your parents. But the thing is, I realized I never said anything mean to my parents and my fucking diary I praised them when they were not treating me with respect. And I fucking blocked that out. And I, and I gloated about them in my diary. And I, and I read those words and I'm like, Christina, that's not what you, I can't, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, pissed off or, or, or ashamed that I did that. I'm just truly astounded that my brain would not allow me as a survival mechanism, I now know this, to criticize my parents. But, I, you know, my, my therapist often goes, did anybody ever ask you how you felt in your house? Like, oh, Christina, how does this make you feel? And I, and I, I know I've said this before, but I'm like, wait, parents do that? Wait, parents ask how their kid feels? I was not asked how I fucking felt as a kid. Maybe if I was sick and I stayed home from school, my parents would ask me if I was still sick. And that doesn't mean my parents weren't loving. They were still very loving. But I'm saying, like, that's what I'm saying. It is so fucking, man, to raise a kid. You, it's, it's really important to ask your child how they feel. How does something make them feel? And especially, especially little boys. Oh, my God. If we don't 
want rape to happen in the future, and I truly believe this, if we want rape to go down, if we want the number of rapes to go down, we need to ask our ch- like our little boys how they feel. That's There is a study. I read this long study. I'm not going to get into it now, but that's basically the summation of it because boys are not asked how they felt, how they feel. Girls, when girls cry, it's acceptable. When a little boy cries, I heard it the other day. Don't cry like a little girl. I wanted to smack the shit out of that parent and I wanted to take the kid aside and I wanted to go, hey, little Billy, if you want to fucking cry, you fucking cry. But I, I didn't do that because it's not my kid. And I would have gotten arrested. <laughs> anyway, here's some more questions. Did you, feel, uh, did you feel loved and valued by your parents in the sense that you experienced yourself as a source of pleasure to them? Or did you feel unwanted, perhaps a burden? Did you feel hated? Did you feel that you were simply an object of indifference? Did your parents deal with you fairly and justly? Supplementary question to that is, did your parents resort to threats to control your behavior? Which, again, common thing. You know, it doesn't mean, a threat doesn't mean I'll stab you in the throat if you don't get an A. But if you're, if you're trying to reward your kid to get a good grade and persuade them to get a good grade by saying, I'll buy you this thing if you get the good grade, they're not studying to get the good grade for the sake of having knowledge and utilizing it. They're fucking doing that to get the goddamn bicycle you promised them, and then they're going to forget the shit next month when they're riding their bike. Did your parents deal with you fairly and justly? I read that one. Uh, was it your parents' practice to punish you or discipline you by striking or beating you? Yeah, I mean, I got spanked, so yeah. Was fear or terror intentionally evoked in you as a means of manipulation and control? Uh, did your parents convey the sense that they believed in your intellectual and creative potentials? That, that I got plenty of. Uh, or did they project that they saw you as mediocre or stupid or inadequate? In, in your parents' expectations concerning your behavior and performance, did they take cognizance in your knowledge, needs, and interests and circumstances? Or were you confronted with expectations and demands that were overwhelming and beyond your ability to satisfy? Look, if you're a doctor and you did it because your mom was a doctor and your dad was a doctor, but you don't want to be a doctor, I say quit. But obviously have a backup plan before you do that. But it, what is the point of your life if you are doing something to please your fucking parents? I promise you it might feel so good to please your parents, but if you don't do it first and foremost for yourself, your life's going to be shit. Um, did your parents' behavior and manner of dealing with you tend to produce guilt in you? I mean, you could say that, Nathaniel. You could certainly say that. Did your parents' behavior and manner of dealing with you... Oh, I already did that. Oh, produce fear in you. So did your parents' behavior produce guilt in you? Did it produce tend to produce fear in you? I mean, that's for uh, spanking. Did your parents instill in you a fear of the world, a fear of other people? Now, oh man, uh, my parents, well, no, my parents did that for sure. Yeah, because my, one of the reasons why my mom left that restaurant when she said I was, uh, am I a virgin? And I said, no, it was because she had experiences when she was a very young woman of, of sexual misconduct with a much older adult. And she was terrified that I was going to experience them. There was no communication with that. But then I look back and I, I know how she was raised by her mother 
who was a lovely woman, but did not give her the emotional security that she needed to feel safe in the world. And I know that for a fact. Um, were you urged to be open in the expression of your emotions or, and desires? Or were your parents' behavior and manner of treating you such as to make you feel emotional fear, uh, so, uh, to make you fear emotional self-assertiveness and openness or to regard it as inappropriate? Were your mistakes accepted as a normal part of the learning process or as something you were taught to associate with contempt, ridicule, punishment? Did your parents encourage you in the direction of having a healthy, affirmative attitude towards sex and towards your own body, a negative attitude? Or did they treat you the entire subject as non-existent? That's a very common one. Did your parents encourage you to feel that your life belonged to you? Or were you encouraged to believe that you were merely a family asset and that your achievements were significant only insofar as they brought glory to your parents? Um, oh, and here's a part about strategic de detachment. After a number of unsuccessful attempts to understand adult policies, statements, and behaviors, many children give up and take the blame for their feelings of helplessness. So if you grow up under these circumstances, if a parent belittles you, ridicules you, threatens you physic with, with physical violence, with sexual violence, Jesus Christ, a lot of times you are going to take the blame. And as my therapist often reminds me, and I will never stop reminding you, that is a survival mechanism because a child's nervous system, if you are five years old and your parent is doing one of these behaviors that I listed, one of these terrible things that unfortunately so many parents do, it is to your benefit of survival to assume that it is you because you cannot emotionally handle mom and dad can't take care of me and they want to harm me. A if a child really actually felt that, the child would die. Often they sense miserably, desperately, and inarticulately that something is terribly wrong with their elders or with themselves or with something. What they often come to feel is, quote, I'll never understand other people. I'll never be able to do what they expect of me. I don't know what's right or wrong, and I'm never going to know. The heroic child who continues to struggle to make sense out of the world and the people in it, however, is developing a powerful source of strength, no matter what the anguish or bewilderment experienced along the way. Caught in a particularly cruel, frustrating, and irrational environment, he or she or they or non-binary will doubt, uh, doubtless feel alienated from many of the people in, their, in the immediately surrounding world, and legitimately so. But the, child will, um, but the child will not feel alienated from reality, will not feel at the deepest level incompetent to live, or at least he or she has a decent chance to avoid that fate. To persevere with the will to understand in the face of obstacles is the uh, heroism of consciousness. Guys, we can be heroes. We can be motherfucking heroes, okay? Maybe we weren't raised exactly how we should have been and we weren't given exactly what we needed. In fact, I'm, I, would, I would wager that none of us were. But if we continue to be curious about ourselves in the face of that, in the face of exhibiting behaviors that as an adult we do not even understand about ourselves, if you just fucking be curious, man, 
you will tap into the magic that is living. Often children who survive extremely adverse childhoods have learned a particular survival strategy. I call it strategic detachment. This is not the withdrawal from reality that leads to psychological disturbance, but an intuitively calibrated disengagement Gotta turn the page from noxious aspects of their family life or aspects of their world. Some, uh, they somehow know this is not all there is. They hold the belief that a better alternative exists somewhere and that someday they will find their way to it. They persevere in that idea. They somehow know mother is not all women. Father is not all men. This family does not exhaust the possibilities of human relationships. There is life beyond this neighborhood. This does not spare them suffering in the present, but it allows them to be, but it allows them not to be destroyed by it. Their strategic detachment does not guarantee that they will never know feelings of powerlessness, but it helps them not to be stuck there. We admire such children, but as parents, we would like to offer our own children happier options uh you guys how you doing how you feeling you okay you good am i just projecting i can't hear you or see you so i don't know how you feel about this episode but uh, i i would i would um a lot of times the terror from being uh not given what we needed in childhood no matter how severe because it is very normal and natural to play down, well, you know, my dad didn't rape me or my mother didn't throw a glass bottle in my eye. Like we go to the most extreme examples and we go, well, it wasn't that, so I should be thankful. No, 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 okay? It's okay to know that you didn't get what you needed as a kid. In fact, I, I, would, I would venture to say that it's very healthy to know that. And, and one of the things that I personally felt was that I was alone in this in, in how I was treated. I, I thought, I, not in alone in how I was treated. I thought I was alone in how I felt. And I thought, well, I'm just the worst person. I really did. I, there was a time when I was in fifth or sixth grade. It was when my parents separated. Where I just felt like an inconvenience to humanity. I felt like a, a waste of oxygen. I felt like a disappointment to anybody who, I, who came across me. I really did. And when I grew up, and I realized, really, when we started doing Guys We Fucked, I realized a lot of people have been through things that were similar, and it fucked them up in a way that was similar. And it, knowing that other people experienced fucked up shit I, as a kid made me, I don't know, feel feel like I was part of the human population. You know? Like, it, it made me feel... It, it made me feel human and it made me realize that I don't have to for, just hate with every cell of my being the parts of myself that I didn't understand. Because up until, you know, a couple years ago, I hated those parts of me. I hated them. And so I wanted to end this episode by... Um, if you wanted to anonymously, well, I mean, you know, your email's not anonymous, but uh, I won't read your name. Um, send me a, a sentence or two, just a sentence or two about your childhood, about um, circumstances that you experienced 
or maybe a, maybe a painful memory, maybe a really painful memory, if you feel comfortable sharing it. I, of course, will not read your name. but And, and I'll read them in the next episode um, because it, it really is helpful in a way that I cannot properly articulate to know that you are not the only person in pain. And, to, and, and it also makes me understand that my pain is real because I can't tell you how many times in therapy I just denied it and I just praised my parents and I just, because I couldn't, I didn't want her to think that my parents were mean because they tried. So I love my parents so much and they, tr- oh my God, I, lo- I really love them as human beings. I love them so much, but I, I just for the longest time felt so alone in the world and, it, and, and in the biggest twist of my life. I have come to find that most people have experienced pain on varying levels, but man, and I, and I, I, I take solace in the fact that um, I'm not alone. It makes me feel, I don't know, less ashamed about the behaviors in myself that I don't, that I want to, that I want to be curious about and, and, and change. And it makes me have actual compassion for myself. And if more people in this fucking world had compassion for themselves then that means they would treat other people with compassion like doing this work I can't I will never tweet at the press like I've gone to do this so many times uh in the past four years to tweet something mean and bullying at the president at at Donald Trump and I and I can't and I because I could only see him in a certain lens and and then when I I I it's it's really changed uh how I feel towards him Still not going to vote for that fuck because you shouldn't vote for somebody who's just a walking wound, okay? But a lot of people are walking wounds and seeing a walking wound lead their country, the idea of that makes them comfortable. But I want to make people more comfortable with the fact that we are all wounded by something. And if you care to share what has wounded you, um, email me, the Voices in Our Heads podcast at gmail.com. I will not read your name. Uh, just one to two sentences, not a bit, not, not a long thing. Cause I'll, I'll try to summarize it. And I don't want to try to summarize your own pain and then you, just one to two sentences. Okay. Um, and perhaps we can feel a little bit more connected to each other because yes, the internet is, uh, can be a terrible place, but can it also be a really beautiful place of self-actualization and sharing stories and hearing I, podcasts are so important to me. I love podcasts. I love listening to podcasts. Because they are unedited, for the most part, not always, conversations that are just from the fucking heart. The good ones, they're from the heart. And I I like this podcast, but one of the reasons why I love this podcast is because I hear from you and I feel more connected. And you write me letters. Ugh, write me a letter. Um, but yeah, the Voices in Our Heads podcast at gmail.com. If, if you feel like it. If you don't, no, no sweat, baby boy, baby girl, baby they, whatever. We're all here. We're all trying. Hey, congrats on not killing yourself this week. I'll talk to you next Wednesday.
Thank you.